Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Hey, welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 124. I'm Steve Kwan. I'm Matt Kwan. Hold on, Matt. I'm just going to do something very important here. Just hold on. There you go. Much better. Miller time? Yeah, now we're pouring it in the background. This is, well, it's not Miller. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to engage in that. This is Patina Brewing Co. Oh, yeah, that's It good. is a juicy IPA. And most importantly, it is 7% alcohol, which is at this point in time, you know, a year into the pandemic, that is the minimum alcohol content I'll tolerate for my beer. Like that's it. That's the floor that like 4% stuff just isn't cutting it anymore. Now I need the heavy stuff. Yeah. I've been putting Bailey's and whiskey in my coffee regularly. <laughs> it's actually really good. You ever had whiskey in coffee? Um, I don't think I have, but now that you mention it, I kind of want it all the time every morning. But I, yeah. I'm not sure if starting my day drinking at 8 a.m. is a good idea. That's the only thing. Yeah, it, it is for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about something that's maybe a little bit more productive, some jujitsu stuff. Now, you and I were talking beforehand, and we got to thinking there's a pretty fundamental concept that we've never actually done a full episode on. And I think it kind of caught us both off guard. That is the concept of ratchet control. We've talked about this prior on the podcast. I know it's very fundamental to a lot of critical movements, especially certain submissions. But even beyond that, it's actually really important as a control mechanism. And for some reason, we've never actually done a full chat on that. So with that said, maybe we can go ahead and do that now. Yeah, for sure. So just when discussing ratchet control, it's a term coined by Rob, at least that that's what I've heard. And if you just think about the application of a ratchet in a tool setting, something you can use to generate great rotational leverage. So let's say you're screwing in like a bolt and ratchet control describes rotational control, but based upon a limb bent at 90 degrees. That's important because you're using essentially the lower half of the limb as a lever sticking out sideways to generate more torque and to generate more rotation, as opposed to trying to rotate a straight limb, which is pretty difficult because if you imagine someone's leg or arm is straight and you try and rotate it, I mean, you can do it if you have a two-on-one, but you know, it's going to be a lot harder than if you bend their, bend their leg 90 degrees or their arm 90 degrees. So I've got a few examples I want to discuss when we talk about ratchet control. I think the most obvious one is the Kimura, obviously something we're going to talk about a lot. And what makes the Kimura really strong is the bent arm at 90 degrees. And when you'd get that, essentially you're using the forearm as a lever, I suppose. I mean, the whole arm is a lever, but really it's the forearm that kind of sticks out and, and allows you to generate that leverage and then causing internal rotation. We all know what a Kimura is. And yeah, one of the best, one of the best control schemes in jujitsu, it leads to the back, leads to arm bars, triangles. I mean, it really is the, you know, all purpose system. And in, in Nogi, when we don't have grips, I think it's probably one of the more common controls you use. So in terms of limb isolation, when we're trying to find a system that will lead us down a path of many different options, I think Kimura is kind of the one you were looking for. Yeah. Kimura is probably the most intuitive example of ratchet control, right? Because you are literally taking your opponent's arm and you're turning it like a ratchet, right? It, very visually, you can understand what we're talking about here. I think before we go too far down the rabbit hole, it's important to maybe clarify some terms. In the past on the podcast, we've talked about rotational control, and I view that as something a little bit different, right? If I have your back and I have my hooks in, I'm trying to keep rotational control. I'm trying to prevent your body from being able to rotate 
so you can turn around to face me. That's a little bit different. When we talk about ratchet control, we're talking about taking someone's limb and basically doing internal rotation on it, which in many situations is an extremely powerful way to get leverage on someone's limb because most of our limbs are not intended to rotate that way. Like if I try to straight arm bar you, just pull the arm bar back, or I try to do a straight knee bar where I just pull the knee back, I'm working against very powerful muscle groups, right? Like if you think of how much weight you could do with like a bicep curl or a leg press, you can get a lot of power on that. But as soon as you start twisting, you just don't have that much musculature. You're generally going after like weaker ligaments. So part of the reason why ratchet control is so powerful is because that twisting motion is something our body has a hard time stopping. Mm -hmm. And important to recognize that while technically ratchet control could be internal or external rotation, whether it's legs or arms, I find the degree of control is so much more powerful when it's internal rotation. So if you wanted to contrast, say, a Kimura with an Americana, right? Like essentially the arm is in the same shape. It's a 90 degree bend, but one is internal rotation of the shoulder, which would be the Kimura, and one is external rotation of the shoulder, which would be an Americana. And a Kimura is a move that works at the highest levels. So you don't see a lot of Americanas, whereas Kimuras are everywhere. You see them black belt level, ADCC level, whatever. And Americanas I generally find are a little bit easier to escape just because of the nature of the technique. It's not super easy to transition from an Americana to say the back. Because of the rotation, you actually deny yourself back exposure. But with a Kimura, with internal rotation, there's quite often back exposure or the ability to transition into a classical armbar or a triangle. Not that you can't do those moves with an Americana, but there's it's definitely more rare to see that technique at the highest levels. I have heard it, or at least heard it explained as like a white belt submission, right? I think when people think of Americanas, they very much think of it as a white belt submission because at white belt, it is like a kill shot. <laughs> you know, it, white belts have a lot of other white belts with Americanas, especially big guys. They love those things. But against a good opponent, it's very hard to submit someone with an Americana. I mean, it's not impossible, right? John Jones did submit Vitor Belfort with an Americana, yeah. granted after he whooped him. <laughs> oh, it's very effective. If you if you dial it in, it is effective for sure. I'm not saying it doesn't work. You know, if you have all the ingredients, it's a very powerful submission, but it is hard. It's easier to punch your arm straight out of an Americana, you could argue, than a Kimura. Well, I think the other thing too is that with an Americana, the attack is happening right in front of you, right? So your mm -hmm. ability to get an Americana, it if you someone is doing that to you, then you can kind of coil your arm back towards your body. You can use your other hand to fight it off. You can often turn into the submission to loosen the pressure. But with a Kimura, if your arm is bent behind your back, very, very hard to actually fight that off. You don't have a lot of weapons to stop someone from twisting an arm if that's being done behind your back. Yeah. And if it, let's say you're like, I'm, I'm just kind of using the example of lying in side control and applying either an Americana or a Kimura from the same position. I mean, that in itself is a dilemma. And then you add the arm bar, the straight arm bar thread. I mean, you're, you're, and now it's a trilemma, you know, and from there, it's kind of a system that feeds into itself and, and can continue until you get a breakthrough or you can use it to, you know, transition other positions. But, you know, if you had an Americana from side control and you wanted to take the back, you can't. It's not unless your opponent really turns towards the attacking arm and exposes their back. You know, usually, usually if you lie on them and you trap that far side of their body, they can't easily turn in a lot. The most defense I see from an Americana is like kind of like a forward shrimp movement and a punching the arm straight. Whereas a Kimura, that doesn't exist. In a Kimura, you almost have to sit up and then that leads you down this path of getting your back taken and getting triangled and all this stuff. I mean, you can, you can, you can still do a, a forward shrimp movement to escape the Kimura as well, but I would argue that it is more effective in navigating through different moves than the Americana. Definitely Americana. I don't recommend nearly as much as a control position as I do Kimura. Yeah, I find that the Kimura is a very powerful control position. I mean, the Kimura trap is basically ratchet control. That is the entire mechanism behind at least primarily why the Kimura trap works. With an Americana, 
they are useful. Where I particularly like them is if I'm mounted on someone or I have side control from the top and the guy on the bottom is being very defensive. I like to mm-hmm. go for an Americana because it forces him to respond and maybe I can loosen up his yeah. arm and get access to transitioning to like a higher mount or something. But it's very hard to just submit someone who's good mm-hmm. with that move because their body is still in yeah, a- You're not really expecting to get it. Yeah, you're doing it kind of as like a jab, right? You're doing it to create a reaction. You're not thinking, I'm going to submit this high-level opponent with an Americana. It's not impossible, but it's challenging. Now, something I want to maybe get a definition on, you talked about internal rotation versus external rotation. Can you explain for me what those mean and what the differences are? Yeah, I guess for people who haven't, you know, who can't picture a a Kimura or an Americana, you know, if you held your elbow out away from your body parallel to the floor, if your hand is in the downward position, then your shoulder is rotating inward and there's your Kimura. If your hand is in up in the air, that's the rotation of the Americana. So we always think about arms and legs as levers, right? And they're all attached to your torso. And at the, each corner of your torso is just that, a corner. There's two shoulders, two hips. So I think about when you're doing a Kimura, you're rotating internally the shoulder and you're really trying to take purchase over that shoulder so that you're essentially putting your opponent in check. You know, we talk about this all the time when we're talking about alignment and creating offensive cycles and stuff like that. You always want to break your opponent's alignment. So if you get if you isolate a limb two on one and you get a Kimura using ratchet control and internal rotation, I mean, you're you're able to really dominate that position And again, we discussed taking backs, triangles, all that stuff. I mean, it's one of the most powerful schemes for control in jiu-jitsu. Americana is not really a control system. It's mostly how you described it, where it's it's an attack, it's a submission, and it's usually meant to create a reaction. It can work. It can work on good people, but you definitely need to finish it the proper way. You know, like if let's say they give up Let's say you're you're Americanaing someone and they actually give up the Americana, they give up the two-on-one. I mean, maybe we should discuss a few details that make that kind of viable, right? First thing, arm can't be straight. That's always going to destroy your Kimura or Americana. But you could always transition into arm bars and things like that and continue the cycle technically. I think a really important detail for the Americana is the elbow has to be close to the hip. If the elbow comes away from the body then there's going to be more rotation allowed from the shoulder. And that's where you'll get people being able to be uh, explosive again. But by applying the figure four and bringing the elbow down to the hip, you're going to find that it really doesn't take a lot of range of motion to finish the submission. And also, I think a, a strong detail is the monkey grip. So the thumbless grip, because really where we're going to generate a lot of torque, whether we're using Americana or Kimura, is the rolling of the wrists. So, you know, imagine you have your figure four on the guy's arm and uh, you have C-grips because you used C-grips most likely to just isolate the wrist. And then from there, when it's time to finish and actually apply the rotation, the external rotation in this case, we roll both hands forward. That's an important detail. Mm-hmm. The, the hand that you have on their wrist and the hand that you have on your own wrist you want to roll forward. And the reason we do that is because it generates so much more power and it also makes it more difficult for your opponent to punch their arms straight. You know, if, if you can imagine using a C-grip in a Kimura next time, try it. If you're not aware of this, if you have a C-grip during a Kimura and you try and apply torque, you're going to find your thumbs actually, they get uncomfortable. They're actually going to block you from rotating your wrists forward. But if you rotate, if you go monkey grip, you rotate your wrist forward, you're going to find tons of torque throughout the Kimura or the Americana. And an added benefit of this is, you know, if you if you just grab someone with your fingers and your wrists aren't rolled forward, it's easy for them to punch through your fingers. But if you roll your knuckles down and roll your wrist forward, then it puts a really solid frame in front of the direction that your opponent would want to straighten their arm. So tons of benefits for using a monkey thumbless grip and rolling your wrist down and forward. Yeah, that's one of those things that intuitively really screwed me up when I was starting because if you've never trained jujitsu before and you want to go for a Kimura, the intuitive thing feels like you should go for a C-grip, right? Where you kind of like cup your hand around the other guy's wrist. It feels intuitively like it should be stronger because you're making so much more connection. But you're right, like the power that really takes that arm out of alignment is when 
you roll their wrist. Basically, you do, like you said, the monkey grip. You kind of rev their arm like you're revving a motorcycle handle. Mm -hmm. That turning is what actually weakens their arm and takes it really far out of alignment. And it's one of those things that if people have doubts about, really all I can say is just try it. Like try the difference and ask your opponent how it feels. If you C-cup them, like you grab their their wrist, then actually your, your thumb is kind of exposed and, you know, it will get very uncomfortable. Whereas if you monkey paw their hand and you rev their wrist like it's a motorcycle handle, it's very hard for your opponent then to straighten their arm or to punch it out. It just, that extra bit of rotation, it's like ratchet control on top of ratchet control, right? You're already ratcheting their arm for the Kimura, but then additionally, you're ratcheting their wrist and that extra little bit of twist makes it very hard for your opponent to do a straight punch out of a move. Like I mentioned earlier, the body, especially the arms and the legs, we're very good at straight pressing motions, right? We're very good at bicep curls. We're very good at leg presses. But if you start twisting that limb, it takes it out of alignment and you can no longer do a straight press. And anytime you can twist a limb, it actually makes it a lot weaker than if you just tried to pull it or push it directly. Yeah, for sure. And just to address the difference between a fingerless grip and a C-grip, when to use these grips. I use a C grip when it's time to pin or trap a wrist. So if we're fighting and I'm able to grab your wrist and pin it to the floor or to your body, I would use a C grip because I want more immediate coverage, right? Essentially at that point, it's a one-on-one. I want to pin your wrist with as much coverage around the wrist as possible. Once I lock my hands in a figure four, and it's time to actually start to apply torque to the shoulder, that's when I will take my thumbs out of the equation and roll my wrists forward. And really what that's doing, I guess, is it's it's taking tension or it's putting tension into the joint, right? Before you do that, it, you only get minimum tension, but just like heel hooks and kimuras and even arm bars, any, any joint lock, you want to put tension into the joint before we start doing the finishing mechanics. What else we were discussing there? Uh, oh yeah. And, and important to recognize when we're talking about ratchet control, most of the time we're, you know, we're, we're discussing rotation. So let's just quickly define the, the multiple joint locks that we can do. Right. And I don't mean like name all of the joint, all of the different submissions, but you know, there's linear joint locks. So we're looking at knee bars, arm bars. This is where we're not using a high degree of rotation. There's rotational submissions. So there's going to be Kimuras and heel hooks and things of that nature, you know, even neck cranks. There's compression based submissions. So things like calf slicers, uh, you know, bicep slicers, not not really the most, I think, damaging in terms of breaking mechanics, but still still pretty respectable submissions. And then, I mean, there's combinations of different ones. So you could have a arm bar, but you are also using some rotation on it, right? There's There's ways that you can sometimes combine mechanics to get even greater breaking pressure. So it's important to to understand, you know, when when you're launching attack, is it a is it an attack where, you know, the limb is just being extended, like hyperextended in a straight fashion, or is it possible to do submissions that have rotational benefits, such as kimuras and heel hooks, that I find are generally a lot more damaging than the linear submissions or compression based submissions. And I love what you brought up there about hybrid submissions, because that's something that really helps if you want to put an exclamation mark on the end of some of those linear submissions, right? If you're going for a knee bar or a straight ankle lock or an arm bar, and you're having trouble getting it because your opponent is just strong, they're defending very well, instead of just pulling back linearly, adding a bit of twist on it also helps a lot because it takes the arm further out of alignment and no longer can your opponent use their strongest muscles to fight it off. So an example, I mean, I remember when I started jujitsu for the longest time, if I wanted to do an arm bar, I would always just, you know, pull the arm straight back and that'll work. But if you want to make it really strong, if you can twist your body a little bit and put a little bit of twist into the arm as well, then no longer can your opponent just easily bicep curl out of it. Similarly, if you're going for a knee bar, I think everyone knows like best practices for the knee bar are you put their heel like, you know, kind of like close to your chin so that the upper chin so that they can't get their foot on the ground. And then you twist the heel because the leg is just so strong, right? If you just try to pull someone's leg straight back, 
even if you're a lot bigger than them, it's very hard to just get a knee bar with just linear pressure because the human leg can just load so much weight, right? It, it, the human mm-hmm. leg is very powerful, even for people who are not particularly strong. So what you often need to do to finish the knee bar is you need to grab their heel and turn it a bit, twist it a bit, so that now it's not just pulling back but it's what you described as a hybrid submission where you're also kind of twisting it around and that usually makes the submission much more effective. Yeah, another example of a really powerful hybrid submission would be the straight arm bar, which from the, let's say from the shoulder crunch, you know, if you're in the butterfly guard and you manage to get an an underhook and a like a a head pinch position with, with the underhook and head and then you transition your forearm in front of their face and lock up their shoulder in the shoulder crunch, and then from there, threaten the straight arm bar to the sumigayashi to the far side dilemma. I mean, this is a fantastic attack. We see Gordon Ryan do it on Bouchesha. We've seen Marcelo Garcia do it to Pablo Popovich. You know, these are two really famous examples from ADCC competition where we see the shoulder crunch. And that is a move where... Yes, it's a linear submission. It's an arm bar. But the reason that it's used as in such a controlling fashion is the the rotational nature to the to the arm bar. And if you I mean, if you think about it, I can just describe some of the mechanics from the for the move. You know, if you if you're on the bottom and you hit the shoulder crunch, what you really don't want is your opponent's elbow to come close to their body. Right. And and trying to arm bar someone in a linear fashion with their elbow facing down, they'll just pull their arm right out because there's no rotation on their shoulder to actually lock them in place. The key to a good shoulder crunch submission is once you lock your hands behind the shoulder, you're actually flaring your underhook elbow high. And what that does, you know, normally, again, this breaks the principle of closed elbows, good structure, right? But because we have the inside position in this case, because we have an underhook and we're clamping down on the shoulder, we actually want to rotate the underhook high because it opens our opponent's elbow higher. Yes. Failure to do so results in your opponent just ripping their arm right back and then you're back in square one. So important to, to note when you do the shoulder crunch that you are opening your elbow high. And in doing so, it creates this, well, I mean, it's a dilemma. It's a hell of a problem for the person on top trying to pull their arm out desperately. Meanwhile, you know, your butterfly hooks are sp- stretching them out and breaking their base and they're getting extended and that arm is getting left behind, right? And then from there, usually you can threaten the shoulder crunch and then, or sorry, the arm bar and then the sumigaishi. So without that rotational aspect to that arm bar, it's pretty easy for your opponent to just simply close their elbow and retract their arm. Yeah. I love what you brought up about flaring the elbow, because this is something that took me an embarrassingly long time to realize, you know, when I'm on top, like if I'm in side control or half guard or mount and I get the underhook on the guy on the bottom, right? My intuitive idea of what the best thing to do would be is to kind of keep my elbows pinched in tight. But that actually doesn't do anything. In fact, it's a liability to me because it allows my opponent then to overhook and trap my arm. So even though it seems kind of counterintuitive, often the best thing to do if you're on top like that and you have an underhook is to flare your elbow out. Because by doing that, it forces your opponent to flare their elbow out. And so you're actually kind of like trading your open elbow for their open elbow. And, you know, normally you don't want to flare your elbow out, but the difference is in that position when you're on top, if you flare your elbow out and it forces your opponent to flare theirs, there's no way for them to exploit your open elbow. So normally, yeah, you don't want to keep your elbows, you know, away from your body. But in this case, because you're on top, when you flare, if you can force your opponent to flare their elbow, they can't capitalize on the fact that you have an open elbow. So it's a net benefit for you. And it's a little bit counterintuitive because it's one of those things where we always tell people, you know, keep your elbows in tight, T-Rex arms, right? But in this case, if there's a situation where you can flare out your elbow for some benefit, And there's no consequences to you. Your opponent cannot capitalize on it. It's actually a good idea to do that. Yeah, I mean, there's examples of this everywhere in jiu-jitsu. If you have the inside position and you're dominating a lever with an underhook or other varieties of inside position, it is beneficial to open your elbow so that you, like you mentioned, you open their elbow even further. An example of this would be, you know, if you have double unders and you're in like a mount position. You know, if you keep your elbows tight to your body, you're going to be very, it's going to be very easy for your opponent to rock you over to the side. If you have a, oh, for example, if you have a toehold on someone 
and you, you know, you just focus on pushing the toes towards their butt, you're going to have about half the braking power. A lot of the mechanics from the toehold is actually pulling the heel towards you. And in doing so, you need to have an open elbow. Uh, another example would be just standing wrestling, working underhooks. If you have an underhook, but your elbow's down, you're, like you said, your opponent's going to create a really strong overhook and just completely shut your shoulder down and even break your alignment. But if you have an underhook and you flare your elbow high, yes, your arm is away from your body, but because you're dominating a lever with an open elbow, their elbow tends to be even more, or their shoulder is even more compromised than yours. And so you can mount attacks from there. So you definitely don't always want to keep your elbows close to your body. It's not about being isometrically strong and being as tight as possible, but more so about actually causing rotational control over your opponent's limbs. Um, There was another example I wanted to discuss. I just can't remember what it was. (laughs) Well, in the interim, while you're talking about that, something that I'll chime on. I mean, we've talked Mm. in the past about the importance of limb coiling, right? Like keeping your your limbs kind of coiled in tight so that your opponent cannot extract them. But like you said, the caveat to that is if you can extend your limb for some benefit, like there's actually a reason to do it and your opponent cannot capitalize on you doing that, totally fine to do it and actually probably a good idea to do it. So you don't want to be so close-minded that you're always like curled up like a dead spider and you're never sticking out Mm. an arm or a leg. It's a good practice in general by default, but if doing so, extending your limb actually gives you an advantage that your opponent cannot exploit, then by all means, right? And yeah, a great example is when you're on top and you're going for the underhook, you flare your own elbow. That's probably a very easily understood example of when this can be beneficial. Yeah, I actually remember the example I was thinking of, just a standard Kimura from the T position, you know, when you're half on the back there. A Kimura where you pull your elbows into your body isn't it results in your opponent allowing allowing your opponent to pull their elbow close to their body. And yes, so yes. quite often this will allow them to scramble, come on top, be more athletic because they're they have a less of a broken alignment. But if you have the Kimura from the back and your head's on the weak side and you extend your arms completely straight and do a good job of opening their elbow with your extended arm. I mean, it's that's the way to do it, in my opinion. That's how you get the most benefit out of the Kimura. So, yeah, I mean, we've covered a lot of examples there. Yeah, this is a great thing, actually, that you taught me because I was doing the Kimura wrong for a long time. You know, when I first started doing the Kimura and trying to study it, I assumed that the way to do the Kimura was similar to how you do an armbar, right? Like the way you, if you want to do an armbar well, you basically have to coil your whole body so tightly around your opponent's arm that they cannot pull it out, right? Like it's about coiling yourself around and then using your entire body's power to to put pressure on that arm. Whereas with the Kimura, what you're actually trying to do is, is you're not necessarily trying to coil close to the guy, but you want to separate their elbow from their body. That's how you get that ratchet control. The mistake I used to be making with the Kimura is I would try to coil my whole body around their arm like I would do with an arm bar. But if their elbow is still pinched close to their side, me coiling around that arm actually makes the thing worse for me because now my opponent can start rolling over and I'm going to go with them and that's not good, right? So what you actually want to do if you want to have an effective Kimura is you want to make space, unlike an arm bar. You want to pull their elbow free from the rest of their body, what Ryan Hall calls the open elbow. And the result of doing that is you might have to uncoil your own body a little bit, but the consequences to your opponent are so dire that if you can pull their elbow free from their hip so that their elbow is kind of floating in open space, you're going to have the advantage every time. For sure. And again, the goal becomes the rotation of the joint that the lever is attached to. So if it's a Kimura, I'm trying to rotate the shoulder, right? Unless you have more to discuss about rotating arms, maybe we should discuss the lower half because I have a great example for how ratchet control works um, when we're attacking the legs. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that, right? I mean, as a as a guy who trains jujitsu in the way that Helio intended, where I'm only attacking the <laughs> upper body, it's very intuitive to me how you would apply ratchet control on a shoulder. But what about for the hip socket, right? What is the difference between internal and external rotation when we're talking about someone's hip? How does this work? Because honestly, to me, you know, other than the straight ankle lock, the leg lock game is something I'm, I'm quite weak at, and I'd love to get your perspective. Mm-hmm. Well, 
I think most people are built in such a way that their knees are more flexible outward, rotating outward and splaying than inward. Now, that's not true for everyone. Actually, Rob is a rare example that I've seen where his knees can open not so much, but in terms of rotating inward like a butterfly goalie stance, he can go almost like completely flat and back to the floor. So that's complete opposite from what I can do. My knees do not rotate inward very well, but they, they can splay almost 180 degrees. So everyone's got different builds, but generally speaking, if you can get to the backside positions, I would love to do a series on leg locks in general, but even an episode on the backside leg lock positions, I mean, these are quickly becoming my primary attacking position before a few years ago. I mean, really, I guess it was when we saw Lachlan at ADCC submit Kynan, Patrick Guardio, and Muhammad Ali. When we saw these submissions, I was like, okay, there's clearly a leg lock family here that I'm not studying that needs to be studied because they just, this little guy just took out these giants. And then obviously Ryan Hall's submission victory over BJ Penn was the exact same position. You know, learning leg locks. I mostly focused on the standard Ashigurami, the 411, the 5050. You know, and then now we're seeing these this new style of leg locks where our opponent, instead of seeking the inside position, actually flanks around the outside from um, the De La Hiva guard, usually like the, mm-hmm. the K guard, they call it. And this is this is a diff- totally different leg lock entanglement family because we're entering around the outside rather than going up through the middle and getting underneath our opponent. And again, when we transition from a De La Hiva, I mean, usually the sequence that I work is, and, and what you see Lachlan uses, you go to a De La Hiva, you get an underhook De La Hiva, and then you pummel your knee that from the outside to the inside position. And then from there, by again, opening your elbow, you create rotation on your opponent and you expose their back. See, this is a, this is a detail that I actually learned from uh, Roberto Yemenez. Maybe a few months ago, I was trying to get to the K guard and throw my leg over to get to the backside 50-50. And I was like, you know, I just can't fucking get in there. Like every time I try and do it, I'm trying to throw my leg over and I I have to do this huge inversion to get there. Why is it not working for me? And then I saw Jimenez show it on a, on a Instagram video and I realized what I was doing wrong. I was trying to invert and throw my leg over, but I wasn't off balancing my opponent and I wasn't rotating their leg internally in such a way that they show me their back. Instead, I'm trying to do this huge, you know, swing my leg over and hopefully it lands on the back, but I never off balance them. I never broke their alignment. And so they're able to turn into me and shut my attack down and sometimes pass my guard. So if you can imagine the K guard, you went from the Delahiva to an underhook Delahiva and pummel your Delahiva hook inside and clasp your hands by flaring your elbow on the floor open. By opening that elbow, you will elevate their ankle. And by sucking their knee in, you twist their leg. So you kind of have like a shearing force on their knee, which internally rotates their hip and begins your path to the back. So from there, if you do it properly, your opponent has to turn away from you. And in doing so, you break the alignment of their structure because their limb has been exposed. And also you create rotational control. They can't turn into you. And you also break their balance because they have to now respect the fact that you're turning them and they have to compose their base. But they expose their back. And then doing so, we can enter matrix hooks and we can enter backside 50-50. Or you could also enter backside saddle. So the leg positioning, there's tons of diversity in the backside family for leg entanglements. We can throw our leg over the top and thread it through the legs. We can stop the back, stomp the back of the far hamstring. We can lock our legs over the far hip of the opponent. We can have the standard 411. And then from there, I mean, it's you have such a beautiful leg lock position against your opponent. So long story short, you know, we use this on the lower half too, just as much. I mean, we can't really use it, I think, to the same degree as we can with the Kimura to gain control over the upper body. But you can take the back using this method. You can definitely enter the backside 50-50 backside saddle positions with this method. So if you get there, you're going to end up in a leg entanglement where your opponent is, their hip is completely internally rotated. This is awesome because when you do this, they can't do a sprinter's escape. There's no, there's no pulling their leg out as long as you have the leg bent and you're using ratchet control. 
there's no sprinters escape. All they can do is spin into a neutral 50-50. And if you have a dig before they can do that, they're spinning right into a heel hook, right? So it's a super powerful position. So we could contrast this with a standard Ashigurami where I reap you. So if I if I enter single leg X and I swing, I chop my 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 outside leg inside and and force your back exposure. Yes, I have exposed your back, but generally the sprinter's escape can still work from here, and the spinning escape is a lot more effective. And this is because you're rotating the hip externally rather than internally. And so just like the Americana, I find that there's just not the same control when we when we create external rotations of the hips and the shoulders. When we create internal rotations of the hip and the shoulders, I find that it really funnels us into stronger attack vectors and we can continue the offensive cycle a little bit more extensively. Got it. So just to confirm here, when you- God, that was a mouthful. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe I, I can help regurgitate some of that. So when you're talking about internal rotation in this situation where you're talking about the legs, you're talking about, like you said, the the goalie pose, right? Where you're you're kind of forcing someone to a position Correct. where they're like their knees are pinched together and their their ankles are flaring out. Basically like heel hook position. Heel hook territory is what you're talking about, right? Correct. Yeah. Like a, like a butterfly goalie position. And I, maybe our non-Canadian friends have no idea what that <laughs> is, but imagine your knees are basically together, but your feet are spread apart like that. Yes. That's the direction you're turning your knee inward of the mm-hmm. line of your, of your foot, kind of like you're doing it. So basically the direction that in jujitsu, we're told to never let our leg go because you're getting into like reaping and heel hook situations, right? That's where yeah. your ACL is going to get destroyed. If you allow someone to internally reap your leg like that, that's what you're talking about, right? Right. And we're trying to go there and use that as a position where we can actually, it's going to be very difficult to explain over audio, but there's a, there's a method where you can grab the toes and the heel of the foot and glue the outside edge of the foot to your chest. And then from there, like it's such a powerful leg control because your opponent cannot, they can't turn the other way when you're dominating the toes like that. They can only turn one direction. And then if you apply your hips at the knee line properly, you actually completely control their rotational control. A good example of this is if you watch Craig Jones versus Ben Dyson, who's actually a good buddy of mine. He lives in Vancouver as well. If you watch them fight at ADCC, you can see Craig use this control scheme and it's excellent for getting to inside heel hooks. But again, pretty difficult to discuss on a podcast, but the whole system relies on A, a bent leg, B, two-on-one control of the leg, and C, internal rotation of the hip. Right, right, right. And and to clarify, when you're talking about external rotation on the leg, instead of going into that bully, goalie pose, you would be talking about something more like how when you're sitting cross-legged, your kind of hips are opened and your, your knees are pointing Correct. out, right? That, that would be right. external rotation. And that is powerful because when you get someone's legs to point in that direction, they can no longer use like leg press power. So there's a benefit to doing it, but there's definitely limitations in terms of what you can achieve there, right? It's like going for an Americana. There there are reasons to do it, but it's not as powerful as internally rotating, which goes against someone's ACL. If you rotate someone externally, like I actually use this a lot, for example, if I'm in single leg X guard, I'll sweep my opponent over by externally rotating their knee, and then I'll come up for a leg drag. But Mm -hmm. Other than a few specific examples like that, it's not going to be as powerful as rotating internally where you're basically reaping someone's knee. Yeah, I would argue that the average person, the average person's hips can probably tolerate a greater degree of external rotation than internal rotation. Definitely. For example, if I turn my feet outward, so my toes are feigning, pointing outward, my feet are probably going to be close to 180 degrees. Like I could, I could have a straight line with my feet going from one toe to the other. But if I tried to pigeon toe my feet and try and make my toes point inward, I, I don't think I could get even close to going 180 degrees with my feet. So it's good to exploit that, especially when we're, when we're going for leg locks and, and, you know, good opponents who are slippery and sweaty and very aware and talented, you know, we, we want to be able to have a sustainable control, especially when it gets so slippery. And when we're, when we're trying to hunt down legs, you know, when we, when we take internal rotation submissions, such as 
what I described as a K guard entering the backside family, it's so difficult for your opponent to pull their leg out. They have to rotate the way that you want them to. And so since you know that they're going a particular direction, you can mount your offense to get ahead of their defense, which is kind of kind of the whole game when it comes to you're going to run into the re-roll problem when you go into the backside family. They're going to be re-rolling into 50-50 and trying to hide their heel. And so you must keep control of the foot and cut them off. Whereas when we attack Ashigurami and and trying to and do reaping and stuff like that, yes, it does suck, but quite often your opponent's your opponent will have the freedom to be able to rotate with you, right? And and quite often sprinters escape and pull their leg out. It's harder to maintain the knee line. And yeah, since we're talking about ratchet control, I mean, we should probably talk about how we can reclaim the knee when we're in the backside 50-50 or just any backside position. Where you're going to get in trouble is where your opponent straightens their leg. And specifically, if your opponent, how can I describe this? Your opponent puts their foot on the same side of your spine as their knee. So I'll say that again. You're in the backside 50-50 position. Your knees are face down to the floor. If you do it right, your opponent's knee is also on the floor. If their foot is on that side of your spine, then you don't have internal internal rotation of their hip. The foot must be picked up and dominated as a lever and passed to the opposite side as the knee. So if you can picture this, then you're turned on your side, your knees are to the floor and their knee is right there next to your hip and you pick their foot up and cross ashy to the other side. When you do this, you you will generate strong rotational control. So anytime that your opponent clears their knee and, and but you still have their foot, just by grabbing their shoelaces and their toes and pushing their shoelaces to the ceiling and pulling it off to the to the opposite side of the knee that's controlled you actually will suck their knee back inside the back inside the entanglement and this is something you can't do from other leg lock positions so it's a completely different style of leg locking that is super effective and if you get good at it i mean you're you're going to have such a diverse leg lock game and yeah it's probably my it's probably my favorite place to go now for legs if i can kind of just convert this to core concepts, which are maybe easier to understand through audio. Basically, what you're saying is if your opponent is able to straighten their leg where it's strong, force them to internally rotate where it's weak. Basically, if you get into a situation where your opponent is able to straighten their limb, like their leg, which is going to be strong, right? What you're effectively saying is in a situation like that, if you if you force an internal rotation, it's going to weaken it and force them to make mistakes and ultimately open up a submission. Exactly. By forcing an internal rotation, whether it's the arm or the leg, you put your opponent in such a defensive cycle that it's almost impossible for them to be offensive on you. It's it's not fully impossible, but it's it is almost impossible. You are you've really tipped the scales in your offense and then you basically got them on the run. That's why I love the backside 50-50 because once I get there, I mean, your opponent is desperately trying to spin faster than you and trying to hide their heel. A good backside yeah. 50-50 player like Lachlan or Craig, I mean, they're just going to it's over. By the time it gets there, if if they understand how to, or if, if your opponent is not spinning faster than them, they're going to take your leg home. Another thing is just the internal rotation nature of the, the leg puts so much tension on the joint that by the time you, you get your dig, it's it's extremely powerful. As we all know, we want to take the slack out of the limbs before we we try and break them, right? So yeah, definitely recommend. I mean, it's it's hard to translate it over voice, but you can even just go into YouTube. There's a great Ryan Hall video where he discusses the backside 50-50 and I gain tons of insight from that. It's an it's also really cool because unlike a, a saddle, you don't need to cross your ankles. It doesn't require closed wedges to maintain the knee line because of the internal rotation of the hip and because of the ratchet control. So it's like it's not like a it's not like a 411 where we're where we need to well we don't need to but where most people will cross their ankles and create closed wedges. The strength of the of the control of the system is not based upon that necessarily. Got it, got it, got it. No that that actually makes a lot of sense. I think that one thing that I would say in terms of how I would explain what this feels like as the guy having it done to you when someone externally rotates you, like they go for an Americana or a knee flare, which is kind of more the way that your body naturally moves, I feel like I can defend it without too much of it. Yeah. Or imagine an ankle lock. Yeah. 
sorry to cut you off, but like an ankle lock, like if I go belly down on you, I'm, I'm taking your knee externally. Yeah. Yeah. When someone does that, I feel like I can defend it without yeah. really having to reprioritize everything. But if someone internally rotates me, meaning they go for a heel hook or they go for a Kimura, for example, I feel like in order to get out, I've got to reposition my whole body. Like there's a lot mm -hmm. more work for me involved in getting out. I mean, for an Americana, for example, Matt, if you were to try an Americana on me, I would try to coil my arm back in and then maybe bridge toward the Americana and do that forward shrimp you talked about. And I'm pretty confident I can get out or at least not get submitted. But if mm -hmm. you Kimura me and you get my arm right behind my back, I know that if I'm going to escape, it's going to require me to like roll and flip and rotate my whole body and do some funky stuff. It's very, very hard yeah. to get out. Similarly, right, if you're attacking the bottom part of the body, if you ankle lock me, you know, there are relatively straightforward ways for me to get out without doing a lot of movement. But if you heel hook me, I have to do some pretty crazy movements in order to spin out of that because that internal rotation is much less natural for my body. And I wind up having to basically roll and spin my whole body around. And as the guy on the defensive, you never want to do that because usually when you make those big movements, even if you get out of submission A, it opens up the opportunity for submission B if your opponent follows you, right? So I think mm -hmm. internal rotation is inherently more dangerous when it comes to the submission. I would agree. It definitely is. And another thing is whether it's arms or legs, internal rotation tends to expose the back. That is mm -hmm. something that's true as well. If we do it the other way, if we externally rotate limbs, we don't get the back exposure we're looking for. It's internal rotation leads to the back. Yeah. In fact, if you go for external rotation, normally you expose the front. You know, you make it hard for your opponent to turn away from you sometimes. Like if I'm going mm -hmm. for a straight ankle lock, odds are I'm going to be facing my opponent somewhat head on. And yeah. that's not the end of the world, right? You can definitely finish from there, but it's going to be a lot easier to get to your back if I can force you to roll or spin away or, or rotate around. That's where internal rotation is powerful. Mm -hmm. And just back to ratchet control, you know, as we're discussing rotating different limbs, it's important to remember the rule that we always need to have a bent limb. At least a bent limb is going to it's going to give us more control over the where the limb is attached to, whether it's the shoulder or the hip. And quite honestly, the best way to control it when it is a when we're attacking the legs, I would argue would be controlling at the foot and using the foot as a lever, whether it's the heel and the toe as in unison. Or you could also I really like let's say we're in the saddle. I really like controlling a scooping grip on the inside of the knee. And that is a great grip. Like if you play the saddle a lot and you're, you what you have one hand trying to get the, the dig on the heel, the other hand rotates the knee open. That is one of my favorite controls because again, it does an excellent job of keeping the knee bent at 90 degrees. So we get heel exposure doing so. And also it makes it really difficult for your opponent to pull their knee out. So there's like a double benefit there of, of that scooping grip on the inside of the knee. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. One thing I'd like to pick your brain on, and this is maybe a little bit different. What about the neck? Now, obviously, mm -hmm. you're not going to get the same level of, of ratchet because you just don't have joints in your neck like you do in your arm where you can kind of like ratchet mm -hmm. the head, but you can definitely twist the head. And something that I have found is that there is serious benefit to doing that, right? In a lot of situations, if they're in your guard, if you're on the bottom and they're on the top, if you can not just pull their head, but twist their head, it prevents them from mm -hmm. being able to deadlift. And that makes it much, much harder mm -hmm. for them to posture up. Similarly, if you're on their back and you're trying to sink in a choke, for example, sometimes they've got their, you know, their chin tucked and it's hard to dig under there. But if you can twist their head, it makes it a lot easier to get under the neck. So I'd be curious to know what are your thoughts on ratchet control when it comes to manipulating someone's neck? Neck crank, good. <laughs> <laughs> you should be doing neck cranks. Uh, it is totally a legit form of strangulation, I guess, if you want to call it, you know, going, going for chokes. Ideally, we want to get that perfect choke. We're under the chin, right? But against good opponents, it's just, it's damn hard to get there sometimes. And the fact is, is you can just straight up do uh, neck twists and, and attack the jaw as a lever and, and turn the, turn the head to get the finishing submission. You're not necessarily cutting off oxygen to the blood, but you are creating a breaking mechanic that could be catastrophic if they just eat it, right? So mm -hmm. 
A lot of the time, you know, a great example is if you get under the chin and you have to go to the short choke because you can't feed the full rear naked choke. When you do that, if you can, if you can imagine if you have a short choke and a, a gable grip positioning because you, you just can't get your hand through, maybe they intercept you with their hands, but you're still under the chin. It's adding rotational choking mechanics is a very powerful way to finish. In fact, it's probably one of my favorite ways to do the short choke. I think it's the correct way to do the short choke is retracting your elbow behind the line of their shoulders instead mm-hmm. of trying to squeeze, thinking about kind of retracting that elbow and bringing your forearm as a blade through their neck. And that is really a strong finishing mechanic. So just like how we discussed knee bars and arm bars where we try and add some rotational power to get kind of like a hybrid finishing mechanic, this is kind of the same thing. You know, we're doing the same squeezing and the same compression on the throat to to try and get the finish, but also by dragging your elbow behind and sort of adding a rotational finish to the choke, it can more than compensate for the fact that maybe you don't have your whole arm around their neck as you as an ideal rear naked choke would be. So it definitely has its applications when we're talking about chokes as well. Yeah, this is one of those areas where I feel I was misled in terms of jujitsu. And I think we continue to mislead a lot of people. You know, we have this very pure idea of what jujitsu should be. And we often tell new students, you know, a a good choke is a 100% blood choke. Well, no, a good choke is a choke that works at the high levels, right? (laughs) And what I have found over the years- 100%. Yeah, what I found is that in order to make my chokes more effective, adding a bit of rotation really helps. Because if nothing else, it's not even necessarily that I want to neck crank my opponent. I mean, I don't really want to do that if I can avoid it. But what I want to do is take their body out of alignment to make it harder for them to defend. So as an example, let's say I'm on the bottom in guard. I want to guillotine my opponent. If I just straight on guillotine my opponent, like I'm facing them, they're facing me, I go for a guillotine, they can still engage their their back muscles, right? They can drive forward, they can do a lot of things, but if I now start to put just a little bit of twist on their neck, it prevents them from being able to do that kind of like deadlift muscle motion that makes it possible to defend a choke like that. I noticed when I kind of switched from doing the standard guillotine to the Marcelotine, my finishing rate went way up. And I think part of the reason why is because when you do that Marcelotine, the the high elbow guillotine, you're forcing your opponent's neck to twist just a little bit. And not only does that make the choke tighter, but it takes their spine out of alignment. And without being able to posture effectively, it's very hard to get out of it. So Adding a little bit of twist is a good, like you're not trying to turn the person's head backwards like Steven Seagal neck snap, but just a little bit of twist to take their spine out of alignment so that they can't properly posture to escape is very effective if you're going for a choke. And that applies to almost any form of of choke, right? Like even if you're going for like a Dar's choke or an anaconda, if you're kind of forcing their head to just bend in naturally and their spine is still in alignment, there's a chance they're going to get out. But if you can put just a bit of twist on it, it makes it much harder to escape. I 100% agree, especially what resonates with me is from, let's say, a guillotine from the mount position. That's where I find the the twisting aspect really helps rather than just a straight, mm-hmm. I don't know what you would call it, a curl or or the, just a, like a straight, rather than keeping their spine straight by bending off to the side. That's a super powerful way to finish guillotines. Uh, and again, all guillotines are different, whether it's a high wrist, low wrist, you know, high elbow, low elbow. These are all different families of guillotines, right? And and the mechanics are different, but the rule of, of alignment remains where if we if we can throw a kink in the spinal column, we're always going to generate more, more control over our opponent due to a broken posture. So it can be applied in so many different positions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, I think that's a pretty comprehensive conversation. You know, we talked about ratchet control on the arms, on the legs. We even talked about, to some degree, on the neck. Matt, any closing thoughts or last ideas you want to share before we tie this up? Not really. I, I would love to do some videos on backside 50-50. But again, if you want to get some quick insight, maybe you're a leg locker and you haven't heard of these positions. I mean, it's there's a whole world of leg entanglements waiting for you that are very different from 
what we've seen from, let's say, the Danaher guys. And I would recommend that you check out Ryan Hall. I think he's got a, is it Leg Locks for Fighting DVD? I can't remember what he calls it. There's a 50-50 DVD from Ryan Hall and also Lachlan Giles, I believe, I don't know if it's the Leg Lock Anthology or which which instructional he mentions it. But backside 50-50 is quickly becoming one of the strongest finishing positions. And it's because of that ratchet control with the internal rotation of the hips. So definitely check that out if you've never heard of it. Yeah, that is a very, very effective way to break legs. Awesome. Awesome. Well, just to recap some of what we talked about here on the show, we talked about internal rotation versus external rotation. This is, I think, an important concept to understand. Internal rotation, if you're talking about like the upper body, you're talking about kind of the Kimura situation. On the lower body, you're talking about a a heel hook or a reap type situation. We talked about external rotation, of course, for the upper body. Again, you're talking about kind of an Americana movement, whereas on the lower part of the body, you'd be talking about flaring the person's knee outward. There's nothing wrong with external rotation, but generally speaking, internal rotation is going to require a much more significant response from your opponent in order to escape it. It tends to be extraordinarily powerful, whereas external rotation, your opponent can often still face you and attack face-to-face, whereas internal rotation often results in them having to turn their back to you, which is one of the reasons why it's so powerful. In terms of the various types of joint locks you can apply, again, you can find this on our website under the Breaking Mechanics article, but there's linear joint locks. Basically, this is, you know, you're pulling straight like an arm bar or a knee bar. There's rotational locks like a Kimura, compression locks like the various slicers, and there's hybrid locks, meaning a combination of these mechanisms. And something that I find very helpful is if you're having trouble finishing a submission on a on a limb, consider maybe combining some of these different mechanics. If you're doing a linear submission, for example, is there a way you can adjust it to add an element of rotation? Often that makes it very strong as opposed to just having to pull back the arm straight, maybe add a bit of rotation, for example. Yeah. And with that said, in terms of the mental models we talked about on the show, of course, we talked about ratchet control, basically the concept of taking a limb and turning it in a circle similar to a ratchet, very powerful mechanic in the context of jujitsu, not even just for submissions, but for control. You know, the whole Kimura trap game is based on the idea of ratchet control. We talked about the theory of alignment, Rob Bernanke's framework for understanding really all the mechanics of jiu-jitsu. So in the context here, we talked specifically about structure and how rotation breaks someone's structure, or if you attack their neck, it actually attacks their posture. We talked about breaking mechanics. This is what we described earlier about the different types of joint locks. We talked about inside channel control, the idea that a lot of control mechanisms involve going for the inside channel, like underhooks. But actually, recently, a lot of evolution of the game has focused on deviating back to outside channel control. So things like the backside 50-50. This is an area that I think is going to be explored quite a bit, and maybe we can talk about it on future podcasts. And we talked about limb coiling, the idea that, yes, it's generally by default good to keep your elbows kind of pinched in tight and keep your legs in close, but it's okay to extend them and to flare out if A, there's a reason to do it that benefits you, and B, you can do it safely, meaning your opponent cannot exploit the fact that you're flaring out. So an obvious example here, like we talked about earlier on the show, is if you're on top and you have an underhook, you can flare your elbow out because that forces your opponent to also flare their elbow out. And you can do that pretty safely because if you're on top, they can't necessarily exploit the fact that your elbow is free from your body. So Matt, I think that was a good chat. It is a, a difficult concept to understand. Of course, a lot of this is is quite visual. And probably the next step here, if someone wants to really study this, is to maybe find some videos on the topic to go into it in detail. But I think even just by listening to this, just by understanding the concept of ratchet control and internal versus external rotation, it's very helpful to learn to classify different techniques into these buckets because then you can start to see the commonalities between them and look for trends. Absolutely. And again, the great thing about it is control leading to submissions, not just not just catching submissions, but thinking about them as control mechanisms and learning what avenues you can use to get to other systems. And then you can attack with multiple systems, you know, and that's, I think, kind of what good jujitsu is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
Awesome. Well, thanks a lot, Matt. And thanks a lot, of course, to all of the listeners out there who take the time to follow us. And double thanks to those who actually support us financially on Patreon. The subscription service we offer on Patreon is the best way not just to support the show, but to really take the ideas we talk about here and integrate them into your game. If you're interested, patreon.com slash models. We've got a whole bunch of different tiers depending on the level of financial commitment you're willing to make. And of course, you can scale up or down or cancel at any time. That's, again, the best way to support us, to help us keep the lights on here. And there's a ton of benefits and perks to joining. I mean, probably the coolest thing, in my opinion, is being able to get into our awesome Discord community. I mean, if you want access to like almost 20 black belts around the world who are eager to to talk concepts with you and help integrate the stuff into your game. That's probably the best way to do it. There's a bunch of premium content there too. And when you scale up to the gold tier, then Matt and I are also happy to actually help troubleshoot various aspects of your game through technical reviews or just direct coaching. So again, that's patreon.com slash BJJ Mental Models. If you're not already on there, please do consider it. At least hop over there and take a look and see what's on offer and reach out to me if you've got any feedback or questions. If you want to learn more about the ideas on the show, bjjmentalmodels.com is our website. We've got a full database of all the concepts we talk about here on the show. Additionally, there's a convenient contact form to reach out to us. There's also links to our store where you can pick up our merch and more details on the various services that we offer. And of course, check us out on Facebook and on Instagram. Matt, good chat. Well done. I think this is a good explanation of a, a complex concept that most people think of visually, but I think it really is going to help people to learn to think of this conceptually. And that's something that I think we we do a great job of here on the show is taking things that people are used to seeing and doing like a monkey see, monkey do approach and making them really think about why they're doing this. So learning this stuff was very helpful to me when we started talking about it years ago, and I hope it's also equally helpful to the people listening. Yes, yes. Thanks for listening, everyone. And thanks to the supporters. Yep. I'm going to go crack another beer. All right. I'm going to go get high now. (laughs) Okay. Take care, guys. Talk to you next week. Bye.